You're watching Unsafe Space. In this video, I'm going to argue that the term public good is, well, bad. I'll explain why, even though it's a phrase that might sound noble, it is philosophically corrupt, helps to enable unspeakable evil, and deserves to be stricken from discourse altogether. If you consider yourself an individualist, it's time you stopped using collectivist voodoo language. Before I begin, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button on YouTube or BitChute. If you think you've already subscribed on YouTube, you may want to double check that the thought police at YouTube haven't surreptitiously unsubscribed you as they are wont to do. To those of you who would like to support us financially with either cryptocurrency or fiat, please visit unsafespace.com donate. To everyone else, feel free to sit in your own discomfort. Okay now, on with the show. We often hear politicians and activists from both sides of the aisle justify proposed laws or policies by appealing to the public good. Sure, it infringes on a few freedoms for a few people, but hey, it's for the public good, so no biggie. Even in casual conversation, we hear the term public good bandied about with an air of moral reverence, as if it's a magical Trump card. Not that Trump. Sometimes we use it ourselves. Well, some of us more than others. We're here to defend public education. If you're here to defend public education, raise your hand. Woo! To many people, striving for the public good is seen as a virtuous, unquestionable goal which is exactly why we should question it. Are you even sure what the term public good means exactly? Can you define what is in the public good and what isn't? Doesn't it matter who gets to decide? Churches and private charities can use the phrase public good to describe their philanthropic efforts. But tyrants can and do used the same phrase to rationalize the worst atrocities in history. Public good before private profit. It might sound like something Bernie Sanders would say, but it was a favorite slogan of the Nazis. While I'm sure concentration camps aren't very profitable, it's even harder to imagine how they were good for certain members of the German public. Joseph Stalin explicitly appealed to collective interests which is just another way of saying public good, while simultaneously killing 20 million members of that same public. And for those keeping score, that doesn't include Russians who died in wars, which I'm sure were also sold as good for the motherland. Last I checked, starving to death isn't all that good for most people, even communists. Whenever a phrase like public good is routinely employed by horrible people, often self-described socialists, to justify horrible things, we should stop for a moment to ask ourselves, are they just misusing it? Or do they understand something about the phrase public good that we don't? 
something sinister. The ancient philosopher Socrates, who believed that knowledge was virtue and dedicated himself to discovering the foundations of a good life, was very focused on definitions. He understood that definitions must be clear and fixed concepts that can be objectively and universally applied. You see, even in Socrates' time, there were academics running around spewing nonsense disguised in the camouflage of innocuous-sounding language. They were called sophists. While Socrates was dedicated to uncovering the truth, sophists believed that argumentation was just a tool they could use to manipulate people to get what they wanted. The truth didn't matter so much to sophists. What mattered was power over others and finding the magic combination of words to get results. The sophists were the university professors and political strategists of their day, and plenty of young bartenders from New York greedily lapped up their teachings. Socrates despised the sophists, partially because one of their favorite tricks was to embrace whatever sloppy definitions happened to most conveniently bolster their arguments at any given moment. Socrates knew that definitions mattered, because vague or self-imploding definitions could more easily be used as weapons to promote pernicious ideas, if we let them. 2,500 years later, little has changed. So let's take a look at the definition of the phrase public good. When people talk about an action or proposal being a public good, they mean something that is in the best interest of the public, or something that's, quote, good for the public generally. It sounds nice, right? But what does it mean? It's easy to talk about something being good for a particular person. For example, if you suffer from cancer, radiation treatment and chemotherapy might be good for you. But, of course, other people who aren't suffering from cancer wouldn't view radiation treatment and chemotherapy as good for them. Even more importantly, from the individualist perspective, only an individual has the right to decide what is good for him or her, and what isn't. Of course, sometimes individuals are wrong about what's good for them, but that doesn't mean someone else gets to take the decision away from them. Only an omniscient being could possibly know what is good for everyone else. And last I checked, there were no omniscient beings running for office. One of the most important Enlightenment ideas is that of self-ownership. In a liberal, and I mean classically liberal, society, we recognize that people are not owned or controlled by other people, but are sovereign individuals free to make their own decisions about what is in their best interest. They are free to determine for themselves what is good for them and what is not. So let's return to the phrase, the public good. What could that possibly mean? How can we know what the public thinks is in its own best interest? Is there a single entity called the public that we can ask? Does the public have a single mind that can unequivocally decide what's good for it or not? No. The public 
is just a collection of individual people, each with his or her own ideas about what is best for his or her own life. And often, those ideas aren't compatible with each other. Now, some people will argue that the will of the public can be determined through the wizardry of democracy. To them, voting, either directly or indirectly, neatly solves the problem of all those messy individuals with their own needs and preferences. The idea is that if a majority of people agree, then whatever they agree upon automatically counts as the public good. Because as everyone knows, grade school math is a foolproof solution to any ethical conundrum. The inconvenient truth is that elections aren't magic rituals that absolve all manner of sin. Just because 51% of a population agrees that it's in the public good to enslave the other 49% doesn't mean we get to ignore the injustice of slavery. The public good certainly isn't good for that 49%. The same is true even if the numbers are 99% and 1% or one person against everyone else. Math doesn't excuse the violation of rights. There's an easy way to see how sloppy and fluid this concept of public good is. Simply ask the question, are people with minority opinions part of the public or not? Notice that answers to this question are not consistent and that should alarm you. Consider the case of a system governed by the majority rules rubric. When we're asking what's in the public good, people with minority opinions don't matter. It's only the majority opinion that determines what is good for the public. But when we then actually start implementing the good, however that was decided, Suddenly, the minority is once again considered part of the public because they're compelled to comply with whatever new rules the supposed public good imposes on them. You can't opt out of public good policies that you don't agree with. In other words, people who hold the minority opinion in any population don't count as the public when deciding what is good for everyone. But they do count as the public when it comes to the consequences of that decision. The definition isn't fixed and constant. It's malleable by the will of the majority. And it's all rather convenient for those who wish to suppress contrarian ideas. When people use the phrase public good, what they really mean is what I think would be good for everyone else. They then go to great lengths to try to justify this by defining what is and isn't in the public good, depending on their own personal feelings about how society should be governed. But the fact is that no definition can ever really be satisfactory, because at the end of the day, the public isn't a single entity. It's a diverse group of people, each with their own interests, goals, and preferences. There isn't a universal public good any more than there is a universal favorite color, or a universal optimal bedtime, or a universal high school crush. You can't define the public good with precision because, metaphysically, 
there is no existential entity called the public. Public is simply a label we use to describe a collection of individual entities, who are almost never in unanimous agreement about anything. What's good for you is something only you have the right to decide. And what's good for me is something only I have the right to decide. But what's good for the public is something that anyone can decide, because the public doesn't have a unique will apart from the individual wills of its members. And that is dangerous. It's this ambiguity, this inherent inability to define the public good in a rigid, objective manner that evil people can exploit. And tragically, they do. People who want to infect society with destructive ideas know this. Authoritarians, like Joseph Stalin, for example, they knew this. Stalin in particular understood that he was fighting an ideological battle. A battle of ideas. And like most collectivists, he was terrified to fight for his ideas on a level playing field. He knew that his ideas could only survive in an arena without any competition. Ideas are more powerful than guns, he said famously. We would not let our enemies have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? One of the most overlooked ways in which evil ideas creep into mainstream culture, and one of the most effective ways for bad ideas to undermine competition from good ones, is through the subtle corruption of language itself. In a war of ideas, the art of language manipulation is a necessary combat skill. And Stalin knew this as well. The writer is an engineer of the human soul, he once told the Union of Soviet Writers, which is why, like so many other authoritarians, one of Stalin's first targets was the press. Print he told the Revolutionary Communist Party in 1923, is the sharpest and strongest weapon of our party. It's no wonder why authoritarians from Stalin to Mao to Pol Pot to Nicolas Maduro use some variation of the phrase public good to justify their abhorrent behavior. It's the perfect humanitarian sounding mask behind which they can hide every kind of vile depravity imaginable. It's not a mistake that the public good is ill-defined. It's not a bug. It's a feature. A feature that makes it a perfect tool for the power-hungry to wield against the unsuspecting. After all, what kind of sociopath would question the idea of the public good? It's obviously good. Good is right there in the name. And therein, my friends, lies the danger. <laughs>